Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So he just has a field and is standing there um, <laughs> beholding the field in which he grows all his you-know-what and then he just starts swelling up uh, like uh, uh, Violet in uh, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, <laughs> right? and then bursts. And then you know you find traditions somewhat like this in the ancient world, where somebody, some divine punishment, was that somebody swelled up and and popped. Um, so, <laughs> wouldn't that be totally unheard of? Uh, but very gross. And then the other option is that he, yeah, was just walking and was like, doop de doo and then splat. <laughs> fell on just, his head. Sometimes or, when you hit your head just right, your entire bowels burst out of your body. It's, yeah. uh, it's a, That's a known thing. Hey, everybody. I'm Dan McClellan. And I'm Dan Beecher. And you are listening to the Data Over Dogma podcast, where we bring you greater access to the academic study of the Bible and religion and combat the spread of misinformation about the same. And before we get into any, anything, Dan, I wanted to um, share a, a brief note about an episode from a couple of weeks ago where we talked about God regretting slash repenting. Uh, because a, a helpful listener pointed out that uh, I had two different words confused when I was talking about the root nacham. I mentioned that it was related to the word for the womb, and that is actually a different noun, rechem. And I had those two confused in my head. Little slip of the brain there. It doesn't affect my commentary. It doesn't affect the argument against the claim that God does not regret or repent. But I do want to keep it one hundred. And uh, make sure I'm acknowledging when uh, when I made mistakes, and uh, and a helpful listener pointed that out. So I like that. I think you know it is the official uh, position of this podcast that uh, admitting when you make a mistake makes you more credible, not less. <laughs> uh, everybody. So uh, if that's not your position, then Dan, you've just lost all credibility. Well, but you know. There are a lot of people for whom I never had any credibility to begin <laughs> with. So there you go. I think Absolutely. the the balances are are not thrown too far off. I'm lucky. I'm in the position where I don't have to be credible. I, uh, <laughs> I'm, you're you're the only one that I, I'm incredible, and you're credible. Yeah. Well, uh, there's <laughs> there's that great line from uh, I think it was the first Mission Impossible movie with Tom Cruise. I'm going to miss being disreputable. <laughs> I uh, wish I could be disreputable sometimes. Yeah, no, I, you're not allowed to. You you have to be the reputable one. Uh, I, dang it. I get to be as dis disreputable as I want to be. Well, so uh, this this week on the show, we got a fun show coming up. Uh, We're gonna try you're, something different. You're you're gonna you're gonna take us straight to hell. Yep. Uh, to start us out with uh, for for a uh, a a all right, let's see it, and then. We're going to go chapter and verse, and I we're going to you're going to explain to me why something in the Bible feels like it contradicts itself. Yeah, and I'm sure that what you're going to do is just completely harmonize everything <laughs> and it'll all work out great and everyone will feel at peace. We're going to make these texts get together, sing Kumbaya, and uh, it, it's going to be a great time. All right. But first. All right. Let's see it. You mentioned uh, a a pastor or author from uh, a handful of years ago. I think uh, we're at an age now where a few years ago means fifteen years ago. Yeah, um, so it, it felt like only a few years ago. But yeah, there was a guy named Carlton Pearson who uh, who made waves. He was he was the uh, the pastor of one of the largest uh, Pentecostal congregations in the country. Okay, and he uh, he was out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And he came out uh, as being no longer believing in hell. He said uh, it just it just didn't line up with either his theology or his reading of the Bible, mm -hmm. and uh, and that just blew minds across the country. And since then, I have seen plenty of debate 
about what is hell? Does the Bible talk about hell? What is? I mean, what was it just made up? What? <laughs> what's going on? So, Dan, help us. Uh, was I mean, there was a movie with with Chiwetel Ejiofor. I have no idea if that's how to pronounce it. Chiwetel, I know you're a listener. <laughs> right in, help me understand how to how to say your name, but um, send a recording preferably rather than yeah, just write it. Yeah, or just call me. Well, I'll give you my number. Uh, you can call me anyway. Uh, help us out here. What it, you know, if this was a as big a bombshell as as it was, we should know what we're talking about here. What it it seems like it would be obvious, but it doesn't feel that way. Yeah, and it it <clears throat> there are. A lot of arguments on social media, I see it a lot on Instagram, on TikTok, on other places where people insist that the concept of hell as a place of eternal conscious torment is something that's not anywhere in the Bible, but was developed post-biblically, perhaps even as late as some of uh, the early English literature or even pre-English literature, Italian literature. Dante uh, and others. Maybe that's where the concept of hell as burning forever in a lake of fire comes from. Uh, But there's actually a lot to say about concepts of the afterlife in ancient Israel and early Judaism and in early Christianity. And it's a little more complex than this black and white, oh, it wasn't in the Bible. And then after the Bible, it just popped up. Uh, There's actually a long history of innovation on concepts of the afterlife that go from nothing remotely approximating our concept of hell to how we understand the concept of hell today generally. So I want to start all the way in ancient Israel, however. There is uh, a popular idea that there was no concept of the afterlife in ancient Israel, that you died, that was annihilation, that was everything. You just ceased to exist consciously, physically, uh, metaphorically, grammatically, ecumenically, just in every <laughs> possible sense. Oh, man, your grammar dies with you? That's, <laughs> that is rough. That is but, rough. But that doesn't really fit with the archaeological data. One of the interesting things about... Uh, ancient Israel and the the material remains is we have a lot of material remains that come from tombs and from graves. And partly because everybody just shoved a bunch of stuff underground, sealed it up, and that happens to preserve things quite nicely in the drier climates, like in Egypt, like in parts of Israel. And so we've got a lot of uh, grave goods. And this is actually responsible for uh, a bias towards grave goods. Like when we reconstruct what we have about the ancient world, it seems they were really focused on the grave and the tomb. (laughs) And really it's because that's where we find most of the stuff that we happen to find. So in fairness to the people who have, who take that approach, uh, pretty much everybody from the ancient times did die. Yeah. So, so they, so it makes sense to be, to, to recognize that, you know, they, there were a lot of graves. Yeah, there there were a lot of graves. We we don't find nearly all of them, but the majority. Uh, I don't know. I don't know exactly what percentage, but there is definitely a disproportionate amount of our material remains from the ancient world that are grave goods. Um, and and two books I just want to highlight. If you want to go learn more about uh, the grave and the afterlife in ancient Israel, one was one that recently came out. Uh, by a scholar named Carrie Sonia, and it's called Caring for the Dead in Ancient Israel. That's a wonderful book. And then another one by a friend of mine, Chris Hayes, called A Covenant with Death. Uh, and this is the subtitle is Death in the Iron Age II and its Rhetorical Uses in Proto-Isaiah. Uh, mm. But there's wonderful information in there about the fact that the things that were provided to the dead seem to indicate that ancient Israelites believed the dead can kept on living in one sense or another, and that whatever this uh, this agency that kept on existing, whether you want to call it a spirit or a soul or a ghost or, or whatever, whatever this uh, agency that kept on existing was, it in some sense was kind of tethered to the corporeal body, to the remains uh, of the dead and to the location of them. And so we would see people providing food, providing light, providing protection, 
uh, for the deceased in the afterlife. Mm. Uh, and we also see them communing with the deceased in different ways, visiting them at uh, prescribed intervals to have feasts or to petition them for aid or to seek information from them. So necromancy was phenomenally common in ancient Israel. Um, <clears throat> necromancy, it, help me out with, with that word because uh, yeah. it, it sounds magical or whatever, but <laughs> in this case, it's, we're just... It's basically seeking information from the dead, communing with them um, to engage in some kind of exchange uh, of information. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting to say that I mean, you you started this part of uh, of your segment by saying that that people are saying that uh, ancient the ancient Hebrews had no no concept of an afterlife, but now I'm realizing that I remember there being stories. Uh, you know, the 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 witch of Endor jumps to mind, where someone is called back from the dead, or someone yeah. is communicated with after they've died. So that's the the necromancer of Endor. She yeah. um, her profession has been outlawed by Saul, but then Saul is in a bind, and he needs to get information from Adonai, and the prophets aren't doing it for him. So in disguise, he visits the necromancer of Endor, and uh, wants to call up Samuel, and it works. And uh, the necromancer says, "I see Elohim. I see uh, deity." rising up from the underworld. The, um, and uh, Saul asks, you know, what is its form? And, and basically Samuel's come in there to say, uh, you should have let me sleep. And, um, <laughs> and then says Saul is going to die in, uh, in battle. And that's what ends up happening. But yeah, we see some interesting things there. One, so, uh, Samuel is still extant still exists in the sense that they are some kind of, uh, I, I don't want to say incorporeal or immaterial, but uh, some kind of non-fleshly uh, uh, sense. And they're referred to as an Elohim, as a deity, uh, which kind of attests to the overlap in the concept of ancestors and deities. Uh, Interesting. But you have care and feeding for the dead because they kept on existing in some sense. And there's a way this is kind of like the movie Coco, where they were thought to exist as long as they were remembered. And right. so some of the ways that people would uh, try to ensure that they were remembered for longer periods is they would pay to have their name pronounced over their mortuary chapel or something like that or they would the families were expected to go make offerings to commune with them to pronounce their name because the pronunciation of their name in a sense was a materialization of their name in a sense uh extended their post-mortem existence and the nature of this post-mortem existence is not incredibly clear uh from what we can tell from the biblical text it was just kind of a dreary murky uh, ambiguous just existence of some kind that was, uh, we get the sense that it was fraught with all kinds of dangers associated with malevolent uh, or benevolent forces that might exist in this in this world of the deceased, uh, but also somehow the deceased also had access to strategic information and so could be petitioned for aid. You People would go and in this um, type of Worship we refer to as ancestor worship. They could go petition their ancestors for aid, or say, "Hey, can you get so and so to stop stealing my stuff, or <laughs> to give back my stuff?" Uh, or um, you know, you had imprecatory petitions and things like that too. So they uh, that, were. You just used a word I do not know. Imprecatory, uh, uh, which has to do with cursing. Okay. So imprecatory is means I'm I'm putting some kind of curse on you. I'm saying go go spook bad. my neighbor. He's a he's yeah. a jerk. <laughs> or make somebody fall in love with me, or okay. make somebody not be in love with me. Like there were all kinds of different ways that the deceased could could help out. But this this realm of the dead was the same for everybody. There was no distinction between uh, the good and the evil. Uh, it was the same place for everyone. And in the Hebrew, the, the word most commonly associated with this realm was Sheol, uh -huh. which just, it could mean the grave literally, or it could mean the grave figuratively, the realm of the dead. And so everybody was destined for Sheol 
in one sense or another. And in many English translations of the Bible, Sheol is translated hell or grave or pit or something like that. Um, so but, this but is, in and of itself, that word doesn't have a negative or a positive connotation. It just, it, it's negative in the sense that it's mysterious, it's murky. Uh, and it we're sucks pretty, to be dead. Yeah, it's going to suck to be there. But there's not a distinction of do good and you'll get on, you know, you'll be in the uh, the better part of Sheol. It was just right. everybody's going to Sheol. <laughs> um, and so you did good or bad or how you acted in life really only affected your lot in life. Because once you were dead, everybody's lot was the same. Interesting. So when we get into the Hellenistic period, when we have a lot more interactions with first um, the uh, Zoroastrian societies and then the Greco-Roman societies, we <clears throat> start to see some uh, bleeding into Judaism, these concepts of uh, Hades on the the Greco-Roman side of things uh, and a kind of dualism on the Zoroastrian side of things. And you start to see people distinguishing uh, a a different kind of abode in the afterlife for those who who do bad and for those who do good and and I get the sense there's uh, there's still an argument to make it's still debated but I would argue that the concept of punishment in the afterlife probably derived from early Jewish experiences with larger empires that were oppressing them. And the observation that there did not seem to be punishment for the wicked in this life, because mm -hmm. the people who seemed to be the most successful and the most powerful and the most wealthy frequently were also the most wicked and the most evil, and they didn't ever really seem to get their comeuppance. Right. And so I think there's an argument to make that the concept of divine punishment in the afterlife is rooted in some sense in fantasizing about the incredibly wicked and evil and powerful people of the world getting their just desserts, if not in this life, then in the life to come. Well, it makes sense. How how can one believe in a just deity, in a just God, and yet justice doesn't come to the worst people that they can think of, the people yeah. who have most hurt their people? There's got you know, it it all it just makes a lot of sense to imagine a justice that comes after this life. Yeah, and, and we see these debates about, uh, in wisdom literature, in Job and Ecclesiastes, and elsewhere, this idea of why do bad things happen to good th people and good things happen to bad people. There doesn't seem to be any justice. Well, once you can tack on what Latter-day Saints are used to calling the eternal perspective, or the fact that there is an afterlife, and so everything can be resolved in the afterlife, that is a convenient. Uh, that's a convenient way to outsource that problem. And say, <laughs> yes. oh, that we'll take care of that in in the afterlife. So I'm going to posit, and I am working on research on this, and and we'll publish something hopefully at some point in the future. And I know some other people are working on similar projects as well. That that is one of the main foundations of the concept of divine punishment. But we begin to see uh, the concept of divine punishment popping up in the Hebrew Bible, in some of the most recent layers of the Hebrew Bible, in some oh. of the most recent passages. So one is uh, in Daniel 12, which was written in the middle of the second century BCE. Again, this is under heavy persecution from the Seleucid Empire, these Greco-Roman uh, folks that are uh, oppressing them. And the other is the very last verse of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 66 24, where we have this statement. I'm reading from the NRSV here. And they shall go out and look at the dead bodies of the people who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So this idea is that uh, these people are going to see the place where these bodies are, are amassed, and the worm shall not die, the fire shall not be quenched. Now this doesn't have to be interpreted to mean they will experience this pain and this torment for eternity. This can just mean the worms and the fire that the people are seeing doesn't go away. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be feeling that. But here we see this concept of divine punishment that gets picked up in 
later authors, and particularly this idea of the worm that does not die and the fire should not be quenched is going to pop up in the New Testament. But there and, are, and the idea is that sorry, I'm th- this no, concept of a, of an undying worm is baffling <laughs> me a little bit. It, yeah, the idea is not uh, anything to do with the worm, other than you these bodies do not stop being eaten. Is yeah, somehow, yeah. somehow they. Uh, I I mean, one would think that after a while <laughs> of being worm digested, you are uh, you're just goo. But apparently, worms like goo. Well, it's and burnt goo with that because yeah. the fires are still going. <laughs> yeah, and so this is this is pretty horrific imagery. It's hyperbolic imagery where you're just imagining these uh, these bodies just rotting and being consumed for eternity by worms and being burned for eternity, without necessarily saying they're going to feel all that for eternity. Right. <laughs> Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, But we have some other literature that is not part of what we understand as the canonical Bible that is reflecting on this as well. Uh, the uh, book of First Enoch, for instance, seems to be one of the innovators of the concepts that are going to be picked up later on, and particularly as it relates to uh, the word Gehenna, which is in the New Testament, in the Greek transliteration, frequently translated hell in English translations. Now, Gehenna is um, in the Hebrew Bible. If you go look it up in your Bible, it's referred to as the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. So, um, Geh Ben Hinnom is is the word in Hebrew, but it becomes Gehenna uh, in the uh, or Geh Hinnom. Uh, in the Greco-Roman period. And this is an actual valley that run, kind of swoops down and runs uh, to the south and then to the southeast around Mount Zion. It meets up with the central valley uh, and the Kidron Valley coming down around both sides of the city of David. And this valley uh, is where uh, Tophet was located. And Tophet is a name that's used in the Hebrew Bible to refer to the place where the pre-exilic kings of Israel made their children to pass through the fire. In other words, engaged in child sacrifice. Mm. So this place is associated with unspeakable evil in the eyes of the folks who are um, curating these traditions in the exilic and in the post-exilic period. Now, I want to stop and make a quick qualification here. There is a an idea that this place around the time of Jesus was a landfill where there were perpetually burning fires or where the bodies of criminals uh, were tossed. Uh, and so there's this idea that this is just this perpetually burning place of filth and dead bodies and stench and all this. And there are no archaeological or textual data that actually support that. Um, Interesting. I have heard those theories. That, yeah. That's something that has popped up in my just looking around. So, and, that, yeah, that's, and that's something that we don't see anybody making those claims until many centuries after the time of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was just in that valley a couple weeks ago. It's a lovely park down there. 
So no no uh, garbage. No no garbage at all. Grass, green grass. Uh, there's there's a little um, like. Uh, uh, rope bridge that goes across part of the valley oh, cool. that you can go um, run across if uh, if you're brave enough. Uh, and they have a little concert venue on one end of it. It's a lovely area. So I tell people, uh, or you know, I, I told the the uh, tour group I was with, you can tell people now you've been to hell, and there's a lovely <laughs> park. There, there you go. And, Absolutely. Yeah. So and very few child sacrifices. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's all in the past. That's gone so, way down. Yeah, since since the <laughs> uh, the exilic period. But when we get into the Hellenistic period, because this valley is associated with unspeakable evil and with child sacrifice and with burning, it becomes kind of a symbolic location for wickedness and punishment. So we have in the book of Enoch a reference to this valley right by Jerusalem where certain entities, uh, we've got some angels who are being buried under mountains and we've got some other who, who are being reserved in this deep, dark valley where they're going to be punished. And we first have a reference to or, or a suggestion that this is a place for eternal postmortem punishment. So first Enoch is is kind of the the seedbed for this idea. And this And is, talk to me about Enoch. I don't know So first the Enoch book well. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of people don't and and even the people who spend all of their time on on TikTok making videos about first Enoch frequently don't understand what it is. But <laughs> okay. it's it's uh, in a sense it's a retelling of some of the main stories from Genesis that and particularly focused on Genesis 6, the uh, kind of setting the stage for the flood, where it talks about the B'nai Elohim, the children of God, uh, seeing the, uh, the daughters of humanity, seeing that they're beautiful, going down, marrying them, having children with them. Uh, and then it says in the text of Genesis, the Nephilim were on in the land in those days and after as well. And then it goes straight into, and so the Lord saw that everything was corrupt and wanted to destroy the earth. And so it's it's probably an older disconnected tradition that was inserted in this spot to kind of buttress the idea that God was was perfectly validated in wanting to destroy everything that breathed on the earth. Um, but what First Enoch does is pick up that story and kind of expand on it, fill in a lot of the the gaps and use that as kind of a conceptual template for the story about angels uh, rebelling against God, coming down um, and inappropriately engaging in sexual intercourse with human women and siring these giants. And then the giants have children who are the Nephilim and they die. And then the ghosts <laughs> or the spirits that, that rise up from their deceased bodies become demons and, um, the angels teach humanity uh, everything, all the wickedness from warfare to makeup. Um, Interesting. And so it's it's really we're one gonna of, have to do a whole a whole episode. Oh yeah, this. yeah, definitely. First, Enoch need, needs to have a whole discussion. But and this is one of the most influential non-biblical texts in this period. This sets the stage for so much that goes on regarding angels, regarding the source of evil. Uh, and, and in part, this was a way to account for where evil came from. We right. have the problem of evil, of theodicy. How does we get evil from every creation that was all good? And it's, well, these angels rebelled. And they came down and they basically uh, physically reproduced evil and then spread knowledge of evil. And when was this book written? Um, so this is uh, Greco-Roman period, Hellenistic period. It's okay. probably... The earliest phases of it are probably somewhere um, around 300 BCE or after, and it kind of cumulatively picks up a bunch of stories. So there are several, I think there are five distinct books within the book of Enoch, and they are generally dated to different periods by scholars starting around 300 BCE down to probably close to the turn of the era. Well, actually, some of the later layers of some of these books probably comes uh, in the common era rather than before the common okay. era. But okay. there's an issue with identifying this as the origins of hell is that um, eternal conscious torment is not the only concept that is reflected in there. 
We also have two other concepts of divine punishment in the afterlife. One of them is annihilationism, the idea that the wicked, when they die, they just stop existing. Right. Um, and the other is uh, temporary torment followed by annihilationism, the idea that the wicked are punished for a time, and then there comes a point when they stop existing entirely. So I, I think the best scholarship on the development of these concepts would identify three different general categories of postmortem divine punishment, annihilationism, temporary torment followed by annihilationism, and then eternal conscious torment. And we have this reflected in First Enoch. We have this reflected in places like the book of Judith from uh, the Apocrypha, which is um, quoting or at least alluding to Isaiah 66 and the fire and the worms. And we have it uh, in a handful of other texts. Uh, we have even Josephus discussing things like this. We have some rabbinic literature that's discussing things like this, the Apocalypse of Abraham, uh, Second Baruch, a number of texts that are considered Apocrypha or Pseudepigrapha or other early Jewish writings are kind of... Um, we see one or more of these three different categories bubbling to the surface. And so what we can say is that the concept of hell or divine punishment in the afterlife is not yet systematized. It's kind of ambiguous. It's inconsistent. People are making use of different ways of thinking about it to the degree it serves their rhetorical goals, but it has not um, sifted out into one kind of universal idea. That's something that would not come until after the Bible. So in the New Testament, we see all three of these categories as well. Um, we have oh, really? this, yeah, we have this idea of the the worm and the fire reflected in places like Mark um, and Matthew, and we have Jesus talking about divine punishment as eternal conscious torment, but we also have Jesus talking about it as if it's just annihilationism or as if it's temporary torment followed by annihilationism. We have all of that in the Gospels. So it is not a systematized concept yet in the Gospels. Some of the uh, other literature in the, or in the New Testament similarly reflects one or more of these concepts. Paul doesn't talk about it at all. We don't have any of them in Paul. And probably the place where we get the most imagery that is going to be picked up later in the systematization of hell, in the programmatization. Pro, pro, I don't even know what that word should be, but in the. I think you nailed it. <laughs> when they finally decide hell is going to be this, uh, they pull a lot of the imagery from the book of Revelation where we have this idea of a lake of fire and we have this dragon and we have Satan and there's throwing down of stuff. Uh, but even death and hell in the book of Revelation come to an end. And so um, we're, fans or, uh, we're fans on this channel of rejecting univocality. So even the concept of hell is not presented univocally in any single gospel, much less in all the gospels much less across the entire New Testament. It is entirely inconsistent, and it is not until early Christianity becomes institutionalized and gains political support and resources once uh, it takes over the Roman Empire in the 4th and 5th centuries CE that we get the means of systematizing everything and then enforcing a single concept of hell, which does reduce down to this concept of eternal conscious torment. But for the authors of the New Testament, there's no one concept of hell. Some of them don't refer to any of these concepts of hell. Some of them refer to multiple different ones. And these are influenced uh, by Greco-Roman ideas of Hades. They're influenced by what's going on in the book of Enoch. Uh, they're influenced perhaps by Zoroastrianism, although we don't have a lot of great data to show us exactly how it was influenced. And so hell comes together from a number of different streams of traditions uh, that begin inconsistently uh, and don't really arrive at what we understand today about hell until 
well after the Bible has been completed. And then we also have, obviously, that other literature, uh, Dante and and others uh, that are giving us additional imagery that contribute to the, the accumulated kind of conceptual package that we generally evoke today when we talk about hell. Right. So sort of circling back to Pastor Pearson that I that I mentioned at the beginning of this uh, uh, of this segment. Yes, would you say that there is a a valid argument to be made that that there is no hell? Could could you do you think that that is a because there are so many different concepts presented biblically? Is that is 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 that a uh, a tenable position, or do you think that? Uh, that that somehow we have to if if we're following the Bible, there is some hell like concept that that is likely to be uh to be to be more likely than not. I think if you're talking about the Bible as a single text, and if you are going to impose a univocal lens upon it and say we have to reduce it down to one concept, then that concept is going to be negotiated, and I think. All of those possibilities are there. You have everything from absolutely no reference whatsoever to postmortem divine punishment, all the way to eternal conscious torment across the different authors of the Bible. So I would suggest that any one of those positions is arguable if you're trying to uh, accommodate a univocal take. If you're trying to say, we have the text, we must arrive at a single conclusion with the text then that is a negotiated conclusion, and any one of those is is tenable. If we're saying, what did the authors of these texts believe about divine punishment? You have to say there are authors that say absolutely nothing about it, that it's not relevant, certainly not salient. Uh, They may have not believed in it at all. Then there are other authors who treat it um, one way, other authors who treat it another, and we have authors that treat it a variety of different ways. So I, I think it's, it's murky and it's a little more complex than just saying, yes, it's there or no, it's not there. It depends on what you're doing with the text. It depends on how you understand the text and its function. Uh, and it depends on, um, yeah, I suppose it depends upon the group that you're doing it for. What are your goals yeah. uh, for this? All right. Well, thankfully, our <laughs> next segment isn't going to be anywhere near as confusing. It's all uh, it, it's uh, uh, well, don't worry. We'll find a way to make the Bible all say one thing. Just stick with us. Yeah, this is this is the problem of putting data over dogma is it, it frequently does not kind of sift out into one easy answer. It, it the answer yep. is usually uh, yes with a but or no yeah, with an or, and or something that um, just entirely confusing. So or just pick one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's up to you. If I if I can show up and muddy up the waters and then scamper away, I've done my job. Good, good. Well, uh, let's well, let's do some more muddying with some chapter and verse. Sounds good. Let's do it. All right. So for this week's chapter and verse. Uh, we're going to talk about that uh, that the villain, the the final villain of the Jesus story, uh, Judas Iscariot, the 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 man, the myth, the legend, <laughs> the guy, the betrayer of Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, because there's a confusing uh, uh, discrepancy. Uh, between the story of Judas in Matthew and mm-hmm. the story of Judas in Acts. Yes. So I thought we would dive in and just uh, just sort of talk about uh, about this discrepancy. And so uh, where should we start? Should we start with Acts or should we start with Matthew? Um, why don't we start with Acts, actually? Okay. Well, that's the fun one. <laughs> we yeah. will definitely uh, start with the fun one. where. In Acts, and this is uh, this is chapter one, verse uh, what fifteen? No, sorry, um, I, I had it pulled up. Uh, it starts in eighteen. We have this parenthetical aside about what happened to Judas. Okay, <clears throat> so yeah, chapter one, verse eighteen. Uh, Judas, 
having received his uh, his pieces of silver mm-hmm. for for his betrayal of Jesus, uh, has apparently purchased himself a field. Uh, <clears throat> in verse eighteen, it says, "Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness," and <laughs> this is so great. Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their language uh, Hakeldama. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm going to assume I pronounced that perfectly. Uh, that is field of blood. Yes. <clears throat> So yeah, Delightful. we uh, that that's a, a gruesome end yep. to to a person's life. Just just tripping apparently, and <laughs> just explosion. Yeah. Well, we have a uh, couple of things. First, this sounds to some degree like kind of an etiology for why there's this field called the field of blood, and so mm. it, it may be that the author is saying, "Oh, this would be a great opportunity to tie in and tie off." the story of Judas, because we got this place over here that's called the Field of Blood. Um, and it's a, it's a Greek uh, transliteration, Hakel de Mach, um, is um, how, uh, what it is in, uh, in the Greek. But yeah, it is, it is pretty brief. And uh, yeah, he has a reward. He buys a field. Now the Greek here, uh, where it talks about him falling, it says headlong in the KJV. This could mean head first. Or it could mean towards his head or on his head. Uh, there's an argument that some people have made that the Greek there could, instead of falling, could mean to um, to burst, and so that would kind of fit a little better the um, or to swell up. That would kind uh-huh. of fit a little be- better this idea that he burst asunder. So he just has a field and is standing there um, <laughs> beholding the field in which he grows all his you-know-what, and then he just starts swelling up uh, like uh, a Violet in uh, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory <laughs> right? and then bursts. And then, you know, you find traditions somewhat like this in the ancient world where somebody, some divine punishment was that somebody swelled up and and popped. Um, so <laughs> wouldn't that be totally unheard of, uh, but very gross. And then the other option is that he, yeah, was just walking and was like, do do do, and then splat, <laughs> fell on just, his head. Sometimes or, when you hit your head just right, your entire bowels burst out of your body. It's yeah. a, it's a, <laughs> that's a known thing. Yeah. Uh, What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. It's a it's an alarming story. It's an yes. alarming uh a tale and what I don't I don't think it could happen. I don't think you can just <laughs> burst open. But there you go. There, there there's one story of uh Judas. The other comes to us from Matthew 27. And and I want to make a point here before we move to the one in Matthew 27. This is two verses okay. long. The first verse tells what happened and then the second verse just ties it in too this etiology for for this place that was called the field of blood. Yeah, and it definitely it like the one thing that it seems clear from uh from comparing these two stories is that there is in fact a field of blood. Mm-hmm. But at the end of both of these stories we know that there's a place called the field of blood. Yeah. Uh so here we go. Uh this is I'm going to start with uh with this is tw- chapter 27 verse 3. When Judas his betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned 
He repented and brought, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See, see to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Uh, but the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them in the, into the treasury since they are blood money. After conferring together, they used them to buy the potter's field and placed uh, as a place to bury foreigners. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. And then um, the next two verses, I think, are, are relevant, but we'll get to them in a second. Let's talk about this story a little bit. So right. the passage in Acts was two verses. This one is, so far, six verses, six of, of a total of eight. So the first thing to note is that this story is significantly expanded. Yeah. And when you're, when you're comparing two versions of a story, one principle that is not a, a hard and fast law, but is a tendency is something called Lectio, uh, oh shoot, I forget the Latin, Lectio Brevior, I think, I think is what it is. But the, uh, the shorter reading is what that means. And the idea is the shorter reading is usually, not always, but usually the earlier one, because the tendency is for stories to accrete more details rather mm. than for people to shave details off. And so just from looking at the length of these two stories, it seems like the one in Matthew is probably the one that's a little later and is adding more details to it. Hmm. But the details are also interesting. Let's take a, a, a look at the beginning. Uh, and, and this there's an earlier part where Judas goes to these people and negotiates the price for turning Jesus over, and they negotiate 30 pieces of silver. And so that's delivered to Judas. And here it says he repented, brought back the 30 pieces, threw it into the temple. Um, and they tell him, you know, this is your problem, man. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> now that 30 pieces of silver is significant, uh, but I want to put a pin in that and keep going. The chief priests take the silver and say, this is blood money. And here we have the tie-in with the field of blood idea. Right. But they buy a potter's field as a place to bury foreigners. Um, and this potter's field is also interesting. So I want to go on to verses 9 and 10, where the author of Matthew says, Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. And this one is wrong. It's not Jeremiah. It's... <laughs> Actually, Zechariah. Um, oh, Matthew, get it straight, <laughs> will you? Uh, and this is um, probably uh, Zechariah 11, verses 12 through 13. But we also have a reference to verse 9. Um, but uh, that was, uh, and they took the 30 pieces. Of, so this is, this is Zechariah. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one on whom a price had been set, on whom some of the people of Israel had set a price, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. So this, is, this doesn't exactly match any text that we have from Zechariah, but it very closely matches Zechariah 11, 12 through 13, where it says, I then said to them, if it seems right to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. So they weighed out as my wages 30 shekels of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it into the treasury for this lordly price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them into the treasury in the house of the Lord. And okay. so the story in Matthew seems very, very close to this prophecy from Zechariah. And this fits Matthew's MO. One of the things Matthew is doing is trying to show that Jesus fulfills all these prophecies from the Hebrew Bible. And Matthew right. is willing to change the story to make it fit better, these prophecies. Sometimes these are prophecies that are found in the other gospels. Sometimes they're prophecies that are not, that Matthew is coming up with. And so if we look in Acts, we've got a very short story. None of the details that are found in the prophecy from Zechariah are found in the story of Judas's death from Acts. Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, it's funny because one of the things that I looked at when I was looking into this was 
you know, if you just Google how did Judas die, you find a lot of apologetic uh, websites, things like Answers in Genesis, mm-hmm. saying, don't worry, these aren't conflicting stories uh, because maybe Judas hanged himself like Matthew says, and then he rotted, and while he was hanging there, he uh, expanded and expanded because he was, you know, the bacteria and blah, blah, blah. And then he burst open after the rope broke or the branch broke. And they, they, they go through this very elaborate um, harmonizing of these two different stories. Mm-hmm. None of them acknowledge that there's another problem, and that is who bought the field. Right. Which is a directly conflicting idea. Like, there, you can't harmonize. He bought the field and was walking in his field with he threw like, and he bought he bought the field with his money that he got with that the the yeah. the thirty pieces of silver, and uh, and then the Matthew version, which is he threw the pieces of silver back at them, and then they went and bought the field. Yeah, there you can't plausibly harmonize it, but there are a lot of folks who are willing to say, well, if you presuppose this scenario, and if you assume this scenario, and if this were going on in the background, and oh well, you could speak of someone buying something with the other person's money as the other person buying it. Like you can come up with all of these rationalizations for right. why it is not impossible. Of and this, course you can. Yeah, yeah, and this is this is something that that I've. Uh, repeatedly mentioned on on my own um social media channels is if you want to harmonize two passages as long as not impossible is the bar one that's the lowest bar you could possibly set but two you can always get over that bar if well it's not physically impossible is the bar you can harmonize anything but this i think raises one of the biggest problems with apologetics is apologetics one does not follow the data where the data lead, does not allow the data to operate on their own terms. Apologetics treats the data as an obstacle to be overcome because they have a predetermined end point and they just need to get around and get rid of and get over and get by the data to be able to arrive at that end point. And it so commonly results in not impossible, stacked on not impossible, stacked on not impossible, stacked on not impossible. Is it probable? Of course not. Is it plausible? Of course not. Is it impossible? And as long as they can gin up the tiniest little sliver of it's not physically impossible, even though we've got a dozen pie, we've got a stack of 12, it's not physically impossibles sitting on top of each other. It's still not impossible. Therefore, dangling like a Jenga tower that's ready <laughs> yeah. to tumble at any in any direction. They've got the tiniest little sliver of not impossible, and that's all they need. Because right. the goal is not to show that it's probable or even that it's plausible. The goal is just to show that it's not physically impossible. Therefore, there is the tiniest little glimmer of validity to the belief in the univocality in the inerrancy of this text. And that's all they need to grasp onto, because it's ultimately not about uh, coming up with what's most likely. It's about defending my belief in this whatever, in the inerrancy of this text, in the univocality of this text to themselves, not to anyone else, to themselves, so they can feel justified in having that belief, even if that justification is built upon the foundation of that tiniest little sliver of not impossible. And so any any two stories from outside the Bible that were so incongruent as, as these two would immediately be dismissed as contradictory. But because the guiding principle here is not what really happened or what do the texts actually say, the guiding principle here is, damn it, make it work. That's going to be the end result is as long as I have that tiny little sliver of not impossible. But um, yeah, what's going on here is Matthew is telling the story in a way to make it sound like a fulfillment of this prophecy in Zechariah. And we've got all these details that are not found in the other account of Judas's death that are there only to make Matthew's story fulfill the prophecy 
in Zechariah. And this is not the only place where Matthew is telling stories in weird ways. Uh, the triumphal entry is another one that is also a prophecy from Zechariah about the king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, even uh, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this is, um, <clears throat> this is apposition. This is repeating the same thing again, using different uh, or additional details to kind of flesh it out further. Matthew tells the story in a way that has Jesus riding on two animals simultaneously into Jerusalem, which has been depicted. That. Yeah, it's been depicted a variety of different ways. Some people have him sitting on the bigger one with the, the smaller one, like a footrest. Like an um, Ottoman. Yeah. I, I, a nice donkey Ottoman that you can get. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to see a depiction of like a trick riding Jesus where he's got a foot on each saddle and he's and he's kind of. <laughs> That's always been how I've pictured it. It's always been a circus act to me, but (laughs) that's my preferred version. But that, and there, there are arguments for why this is the way it is. But one that I think is is probably most likely, in in my opinion, is that uh, Matthew's reading this in the Greek translation, and in the Greek translation, the poetry of the Hebrew, the apposition, doesn't come through as well. And so I think Matthew saw a donkey and a colt, the foal of a donkey, and thought, two of them? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and wrote the story that way because his priority is making sure Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies from the Hebrew Bible as the author of Matthew understands him. Even if that means Jesus has stacked a colt on top of a donkey and then is balanced on top of the colt, which is probably the most likely way you're going to get Jesus into Jerusalem on two animals. But We've got a similar situation with Judas, where Matthew is telling the story in a completely different way, in a way that is incongruent, is not plausibly harmonized with Acts. And so there are going to be folks who are going to say, yeah, it's totally the same story. You know, I, I don't have a problem harmonizing. Of course not. Nobody has a problem doing, with what, doing what is necessary for their worldview to be safe. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's two different stories and yeah, we were talking earlier about a third version of this story. Oh yeah. A story as big as a house. (laughs) It comes from, uh, around 120 to 130 CE. There was this, uh, this Christian leader named Papias of Hierapolis, uh, who is, wrote some accounts of Jesus's life that are no longer extant, but they are quoted in pieces in Eusebius's ecclesiastical history. And to begin, Eusebius thought that Papias was kind of a moron, did not think he was incredibly intelligent, did, doesn't seem to have respected Papias. I don't know. Much. You've told me the story uh, uh, that, that Papias came up with for Judas, and I think he <laughs> sounds like a real smart guy. <laughs> but Papias tells the story of, of Judas uh, being on his property and basically swelling up again, like Violet Beauregard from Charlie <laughs> and the Chocolate Factory, but he grows to a size bigger than a house. <laughs> and this is all like maggots and festering whatnot is just making him swell up. And for some reason, there's a mention of his genitals swelling up and becoming disgusting. And mm-hmm. he's exuding maggots and and who knows what and bursts forth his intestines and uh, whatever covers this property. And uh, as the story goes, the stench was unbearable for over a century uh, on the field of blood where, where Judas died. <laughs> Which is an odd thing for Papias to, to say since ostensibly, according to a lot of people, and this is a discussion for another day, but Papias a lot of people claim is one of the earliest witnesses to the Gospel of Matthew as written by Matthew. A lot of people think he's the first one to attribute uh, Matthean authorship to the Gospel of Matthew, but doesn't seem to take it seriously if his story of Judas totally ignores Matthew's story and instead is this kind of outlandish uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory story of of Judas uh, swelling up and then bursting uh, asunder in the field. Well, uh, there you go. I, I, I don't know what to believe now. Now I'm just, I'm confused. Uh, I, all I know for sure now is that I don't want to go to tumble headlong in a field <laughs> because that sounds terrifying. Well, as long as you don't betray the Lord, 
<clears throat> it should be safe. okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's uh that's as long as you stay away from that cliff. I know it is tempting uh to go <laughs> dance along the edge of that cliff, but stay away from I don't from know. How cliff. how much silver you got? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll consider it. Anyway, <laughs> Oh, and That's, another thing to note, the, oh. the 30 pieces of silver, that according to a chapter in Exodus, that was the value of a slave. So oh, wow. a lot of people find that noteworthy, that Christ was betrayed for the pr- value of a slave. Um, so now we're, now we're connecting Matthew to Zechariah to Exodus. So there's some trigonometry involved, but- um, I love it. I love yeah, it. Eventually we'll figure this thing out. <laughs> yeah, eventually. One day. We'll get there. Okay. Well, uh, I guess that's how we're going to have to leave this one because there's no real conclusion to come to. Uh, but thanks to all of you for tuning in. We sure do appreciate that. If you would like to become a part of uh, helping to make this show go, you can go to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash data over dogma. Uh, you can write into us. Uh, contact at dataoverdogmapod.com is the way to do that. And uh, until next week, have a good one. Bye, everybody. Bye.